The gruesome news continues to come out of Ukraine as we watch the Russians attempt to advance with great brutality, killing children, bombing schools, all of these things continue. I guess if there's a bright spot, it is that um, Ukraine is going to prosecute its first war crimes case against a Russian soldier. This is a man who shot a civilian at point-blank range twice in the head. So I think that will be a, a response that the West will be able to react to. Sweden and Finland have also indicated their uh, desire to join NATO, and that would put NATO along about 1,400 kilometers of the Russian border. So it's a, it's a message. To talk about these things and, and many more, Marcus Kolga, an expert on Russian and Central Eastern European issues, he is also a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute and the founder of something called Disinfo Watch. And this is key because the whole in- issue of disinformation and information is a new kind of warfare. So, Marcus, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Where do you uh, assess things? I mean, we, we have some Pollyanna versions and some Cassandra versions uh, of what's going on, what's your what's your assessment of of where the Russians are today as they continue their move into Ukraine? Well, look from the Russian perspective, things are not going very well at all. Um, you know, if, uh, at the beginning of this war, some nearly three months ago now, um, there were predictions on Russian state media from the Kremlin itself that. Uh, Russian forces would be in Kiev within two to three days of the yeah. opening salvo. And uh, and like I said, we're, we're moving into uh, past month number three uh, very shortly. Um, the, the attack on Kiev that, uh, that opened this war has been repelled successfully uh, by Ukrainian forces. Um, we are seeing Western governments return, reopening their embassies. Uh, just recently, uh, Justin Trudeau, Christian Freeland, right. and Melanie Jolie, of course, traveled to Kiev to open uh, that that embassy again, raising the flag um, around Kharkiv uh, in eastern uh, Ukraine. Uh, there are reports now that the Ukrainian forces are successfully pushing. Uh, Russian forces back towards the border, perhaps even beyond the border. There are also reports that uh, Russian forces are repositioning themselves into a defensive posture as they're concerned about uh, successful Ukrainian counterattacks. Um, but the uh, the human toll continues. Um, yeah, the Mar- Russians are becoming more brutal. It seems. Well, if this that's is possible. <laughs> I think Vladimir Putin has become quite frustrated. He recognizes the fact that he is he's not doing well. He's his he's losing. He's failing. His troops are failing him, and he's um, the the war itself has become more of a war of terror against yeah. the Ukrainian people. Yeah. Uh, the the scale of brutality is is unlike anything that we've seen in nearly the past hundred years, at least in Europe. Um, you know, the, the, the targeting of civilian infrastructure, um, there are hundreds of hospitals that have been targeted, schools, yeah. kindergartens. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that refugees, um, when as soon as Russia uh, agrees to a, a green corridor that, uh, that would allow those refugees in, in cities like Mariupol to flee to the West in safety, they shut them off. They even target yeah, these refugees. Them. They bomb them. They bombed the rail, railroad station in the in the north of, of Ukraine just two weeks ago. That was packed full of refugees. And when I say refugees, 
I mean women and children and the elderly, yeah. because the men are all uh, fighting for um, to 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 defend Ukraine. And so this this uh, this this train station was full of these men, women, and children and elderly, and it was specifically bombed um, to terrorize them and to kill these civilians. Let let me get to a question I was going to get to later, but I want to do it now. What is our red line? It is wonderful that we are reopening our embassy and that the Americans have sent another or will another $40 billion worth of aid and support. And and we are going to take more Ukrainians in if we could ever get through the damn paperwork. It's <laughs> It's so stupid. That's the only word I can use. But yeah. what what is going to be our red line? When are we going to say, okay, enough here. You can't go any further. Well, you know, I think that's the million dollar question. I think that the West has done a pretty good job of arming Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the success we're seeing today is because of the weapons that yeah. we've collectively provided them, not just Canada. And Canada is really... A uh, bit of a Johnny come lately uh, yeah. to the game uh, when it comes to the really sort of powerful weapons, artillery, and such. So you know, I think we've done a pretty good job there. You know, the Ukrainians themselves have obviously done most of that heavy lifting um, with the, this you know profoundly charismatic president uh, Zelensky. Yeah. You know, he's really uh, you know provided that galvanizing force for for the Ukrainian people that has really motivated them and given the given the hope to defend themselves. Um, but when it comes to a red line, you know, I, I see a few of them, you know, um, before we, we started talking we, we, uh, on this uh, podcast, we, we mentioned Odessa. Uh, yeah. Odessa is a, is a critical uh, port, not just for Ukraine, but for the world. Um, yes. A large percentage of the world's grain moves through this port. And there's really um, serious concern uh, around the world within the UN itself that um, Russia may target the infrastructure, the maritime infrastructure, the ports that are used to transport this grain. And if they do that, this could cause a massive worldwide food shortage. Um, it could pro- promote, it could uh, cause uh, some significant starvation in places like yep. Africa, Asia, and other places. Um, I think this is something that um, the Western world and certainly Canada needs to be looking at. And we saw just this week, uh, Vladimir Putin targeted uh, Odessa. I mean, civilian infrastructure, which, you know, two hotels and a shopping mall with his um, his hypersonic missiles. Um, so I think this is just a few steps away from, from targeting the port. I think that Russia will, you know, one of Putin's objectives is to take that port intact for himself, obviously. But barring that, and given the frustration that he's uh, demonstrated in other places by targeting civilian infrastructure, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he uh, targeted that uh, maritime infrastructure in, in the coming days or, or, or weeks of this war. That so, ought to be a red line for, for yeah. Canada and the rest of the world. So it's not just, I mean, this is the point. It's not just nuclear war or chemical warfare. Like there's got to be something before that. I mean, the food security issue is huge. We've already got supply chain uh, issues around the world, and that would be a fundamental one. That would be a fundamental one. But honestly, I mean, if you ask me, I mean, I thought the red line should have, I thought we crossed that, or Vladimir Putin crossed that already uh, weeks ago yeah. uh, when he targeted uh, Mariupol. Has, he's obliterated the city um, yeah. and he is targeting civilians. Um, the fact that he, there was, we of course all saw the horrors that hurt, happened in the, in the suburb of Kiev of Bucha, 
the um, you know these these men with ha their hands tied behind their backs with single gunshot wounds to the back of their heads just lying on the street. The the reports of systematic rape, uh, yeah. you know, to me these are these are all red lines. Um, you know, and you know I think that Vladimir one place where Vladimir Putin has been successful is intimidating us, intimidating us to not act, to not provide those no-fly zones, to not protect the refugees through his right. nuclear saber rattling. And I think that, that there has to come a point where we call him on that. Um, because well, look, and, and, yeah. and we have been slow all along, whether it was Georgia or Crimea or shooting down MH17. I mean, perhaps, I, mean, I know this is spilled milk, but you know, if our response had been a little stronger in those cases, if we put more weaponry on the ground, maybe he wouldn't have been in there. I, I know there's. <laughs> you know, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we've had, you know, we've seen this pattern emerge starting in 2007, to be quite honest, yeah. when he tried to destabilize Estonia and provoke a, yeah. a conflict there. We've seen that he has this voracious mm -hmm. appetite for conflict. And we've had all of these opportunities to stand up and say, no, you stop, you're not doing this anymore. And yeah. every time we failed, we've, got, we've either failed to, to impose any sort of uh, costs to his behavior, um, and, uh, you know, and we've allowed him to, to go along with it. You know, after 2014, the first invasion of, of Ukraine by Russian forces and the annexation of Crimea, you know, we placed some sanctions on, on Russia, but within yeah. weeks, we were back to business as, as usual. And this is the calculus that Vladimir Putin is, no, is, is dealing with. They that go we will to, do nothing. It's the Olympics and the sporting events and goes to G20 meeting. Yeah, it's just, to me, it's nuts. Now, you and Bill Browder, um, the man famous for, uh, for getting many countries to look at the Magnitsky Act, uh, uh, his lawyer, a man who was uh, killed by Vladimir Putin, I guess that's the only way to put it. Yes. Um, you you wrote a piece, and Bill's actually going to be a guest uh, with us here in a couple of weeks too on the podcast. Great. But you uh, you wrote a recent piece on the importance of sanctions and that we have to keep it up. Sometimes it seems too little, too late. Um, but but is is it working in any way that you can see? Well, it, it is working. The sanctions that we've now finally imposed on the Putin regime, and, and we should have been imposing these sort of sanctions on him already in 2014. Right. And I think that had we done it, then it would have changed his, his view and his calculus on, on Ukraine today. And I don't think that we would have seen the bloodshed that we're seeing today. But, you know, um, we're doing it now. These sanctions are having uh, an effect on various different levels. First of all, on, on Putin's ability to make war. We know that um, the production lines for Russian tanks have stopped and they've stopped already for several weeks because Vladimir Putin has no access to the parts, the Western parts that he needs, the technology uh, to make them work and to put them together. Um, the shipworks, the shipyards rather, uh, in Russia have stopped working. He's no longer able to build new, uh, new naval ships um, because they don't have the ability to finance the, 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 those operations. So that stopped. Just today, the Washington Post is reporting that um, the Putin regime has now resorted to basically stripping household appliances for parts, and they are literally using those to try and patch up the, the weapons that have been damaged in the war. That's how bad things have become for Putin 
um, with those sanctions in the context of the war. So in that sense, they are absolutely working. Um, they're also working in crippling, insofar as they're crippling Russia's economy. Now, we need to wait a little bit longer for those sanctions to work and to really take effect before the, uh, you know, the Russian people, certainly in Moscow and St. Petersburg, feel their bite and start to, you know, hopefully rise up and, uh, and start questioning uh, the, the, the Putin regime and, and its leadership. And there are also cracks appearing amongst the oligarchs who yeah. hold Vladimir Putin's money, who enable him, and certainly the, the corrupt officials who uh, support and enable the regime. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of questioning going on. We're seeing that a lot of generals, um, members of the FSB, this is the uh, successor organization to the KGB, um, high-ranking officials, generals have been arrested, they've been placed under house arrest. Uh, so I think the cracks are appearing. And what's most important for the Western world right now is to continue applying this pressure to make sure that we do not lift those sanctions. We continue, we start enforcing them and applying more of them so long as Vladimir Putin is in power. That is the only way that we're going to see change. We cannot allow ourselves to let up and we should certainly not allow ourselves to go back to business as usual with Russia. Yeah, and, and we just got to stop buying his oil and gas because that's what funds it. And if and if we could help Europe, uh, we'd have a little bit more credibility in asking them to uh, to take the hit. That's right. Uh, we're, we're funding, at least Europe right now is funding uh, Vladimir Putin's war machine at, to the tune of $1 billion a day. That's how much oil is right now and gas is being bought. And we that's right. We need to cut that off. Canada also needs to cut off. We're still buying uh, refined oil from, from Russia. We need to stop doing that. And, and you're absolutely right. We have a resource right here in Canada, our natural gas, that can help stabilize the situation in Europe to wean Europe off of Russian gas. And we can offer a, a safe and stable alternative to that, even if we start uh, exporting our gas to the United States, which would allow them to start exporting more to Europe uh, until yeah, we build those plants. Yeah, building the LNG terminals and we can't get ours done at this late date fast enough. Well, we can't get our proverbial stuff together uh, yeah. to get that done. This is something yeah. that we need to do immediately. This has to be a national priority, both in the context of national security, the security of our allies, but also in our economic interests. Um, there, I've, I've spoken to senior officials in the Baltics they all say that they are waiting for Canadian gas. They have, uh, they have offshore LNG terminals that could be filled with Canadian gas, yeah. and that's what they want. And we can it's, also help on the nuclear front as well in building right. new reactors, but uh, Canada has a big role to play here. No, and I think that, that you're right, that it, this could be harnessed. I mean, when you look at the support there is in communities across the country, I mean, we're, we're apparently not sending... Um, uh, any displaced Ukrainians much further west than Winnipeg, although I literally know people who have opened their homes and their basements and their kids' spare rooms and all of that, but we have to find a way to get them there. There is um, acceptance and, and support for this. We could kind of turn it into a national project. Let's get this oil and gas moving so that we can stop this guy once and for all. Okay, I want to come back to <clears throat> or stay on the sanctions for a bit because we've talked about the oligarchs. Um, some of them are mysteriously committing suicide. 
um, <laughs> another one of those phrases. But the one I thought might work is that Putin's mistress and the mother of some of his children, who's been holed up in Switzerland, has actually been moved out, supposedly. Uh, I don't know to where. Do you know any details on that? That that strikes me that this is the kind of thing that might get to him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know the details about that, but that's uh, that's one way of certainly uh, getting to Putin. Um, it's a it's a smart way of engaging in psychological warfare. Um, you know, one of uh, Vladimir Putin's greatest weaknesses is his ego. Uh, you know, when he he looks in the mirror, he sees himself standing beside Joseph Stalin and Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. Um, he needs to feel and and portray this image uh, or project rather this image that um, he's this heroic defender of Russian interests that that he can defend the Russian people and his own family. When he when he can you know when the West places these sanctions on his oligarchs and on Russia, uh, you know, and it it that uh, demonstrates his weakness and his inability to do so. You know, the fact that his mistress is being targeted. That also demonstrates a very profound weakness in that he can't yeah. even protect his own family from these sanctions. So, yeah. you know, it's a, I think it's a really effective way of, of uh, you know, of, quote unquote, sort of messing with, with Vladimir Putin. No, um, exactly. Because even if he's even the fact that we're talking about him, we'll be talking about that issue, we'll be we'll be making him angry. That's right. It's that weakness. And he cannot. Yeah. Um, tolerate uh, anyone that exposes his weaknesses because yeah. he so relies on that image of being the strong man. So this is, this is an, a really effective way of, of chipping away at that, at his ego and that image of a strong man. Yeah. The um, moves this week by um, Finland and Sweden to say, yes, we're ready. We're going to take votes and we would love to join NATO. Please take us in. And then NATO will have to have a bunch of meetings and votes is there some way we could do that in the next 15 minutes or like say six months so that it doesn't go on? Uh, well, I think that NATO is going to do everything uh, yeah. it can to expedite this process. Look, I think that uh, you know Finland and Sweden uh, fall into all the criteria. They've checked off all the boxes already. Right. Um, you know, Sweden may have to increase its uh, defense spending um, I think Finland is is above the two percent spending requirement because yeah. they've they've and been. Sweden still has a pretty good military, even though the spending. Mm, no, not really. No, okay. I think that the, <laughs> well, well we, I know I, I've I've been looking at uh, the Nordic region very closely for the past okay. fifteen years or so, and I have very good friends in Sweden who've for years complained that um, you know I think the Swedes fell into this trap harder than anyone after the Cold War, believing that uh, it was the end of history. And yeah. um, and because they believed it uh, so much, so that they uh, that they really allowed their uh, their defensive capabilities to erode, uh, they took their focus off of that, and it was only a few. That years might ago. be like another country we both know and love. Which one is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they're only coming to that real, or they have been coming to the realization that they need to uh, bolster their their defense spending and their capabilities over the past you know four or five years or so. Um, but I think that most of us who have watched Finland and Sweden, I'm actually, my parents are Estonian, so this is very close to my heart. I keep a very close eye on, on Baltic Sea security. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, none of us would have thought uh, two and a half months ago that Finland or Sweden would ever consider joining NATO. It just, it, it wasn't on the table. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Vladimir Putin 
um, who whose one of his primary objectives is the um, the the pulling apart and the 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 erosion of the uh, cohesion within NATO and in the West. The fact that he's actually managed to, for to to screw things up so badly yeah. that he's bringing the West together in such a way that you know in a way that we wouldn't have ever dreamed of uh, two and a half months ago. Now Sweden and Finland uh, coming into NATO, none of us would have thought of it. Um, you know, Finland is <laughs> well known. My mother used to say, "Cutting off your nose to spite your face." You got it, and uh, you know, it. and 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 a country like Finland, I mean, they put a heck of a lot more effort over the past decade into appeasing uh, Vladimir Putin than to pushing back against him. The fact that they're they're the first out of the gate now today, uh, Finland's uh, uh, president uh, Niinistö and, and Prime, Prime Minister. Um, uh, Sunning, uh, they they've they they've basically run into NATO's arms, and yeah. uh, and hopefully, like we were, we were talking about earlier, that you know, hopefully NATO can expedite that process and, and get them in there. And I think Canada, quite frankly, will benefit from this as well. These are Nordic uh, nations, Arctic nations. Finland has a heck of a lot of experience in um, in Arctic defense, and so hopefully, yeah. we can learn from them. And, uh, you know, because we've we've really failed to uh, develop our own Arctic defenses, maybe now we can rely on the Finns to help defend our... Yeah, Arctic we're Arctic. very, very exposed, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the north for sure. And we keep promising to do something and, and then magically we don't. Um, but, but is it important, and I, I come back to this issue with Finland, I mean, they are on the border. I think it's 13 or 1400 kilometers or miles. I'm not sure which, but probably kilometers. That's a big chunk of, that's a big stretch. I don't know where it is exactly, but but it sends the message to him that we're on your border. Well, that's right. I mean, this the the Finnish border pretty much runs from Saint Petersburg all the way north to the to the Arctic Sea. Um, yeah. So it's long, uh, it's exposed. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin said today uh, through his spokesman that um, you know Finland would pay the the price for for joining NATO. I, I'm not sure what that means. Um, right. You know, I, I think that one of the, you know, the silver lining in this war, um, in in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is that it's it really exposed the weakness of of mm-hmm. Russia's army. Um, you know, this is a country that tried to project itself as a superpower. Um, you know, the the quality of its weapons, the low morale of its troops, um, the the inability of its generals to engage in any sort of meaningful strategy. Um, you know, they're relying on World War II type of strategies. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really exposed the weakness of this this army. It's more like a, a middle power army. And so he may threaten Finland and Sweden with uh, potential future conflict. I'm not sure if if I were a Finn, I, I'm not sure how concerned I'd be. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen how his army performs, and we know the Finnish army is highly you know very well trained it's large because it it re- relies on uh you know uh the entire society being part of that that defense um and it's and it's well equipped so um you know i i'm not sure how concerned i'd be and if and if we're you know if you have nato joining in or finland joining nato i think that that's um i don't think there's much chance of any sort of conflict look Vlad- vladimir putin um he wants to survive he's not suicidal um, yeah. So I, I doubt that he would engage in any sort of serious conflict against NATO anytime soon, unless he's really cornered and he's completely delusional. But I think Finland is safe for now. So um, it gets to the question, I guess, of regime change. He is, I don't believe he's suicidal either. I think I know exactly uh, that he knows exactly what he wants to do here. Um, 
So we, we, we heard President Biden talk about that, that, you know, maybe not deliberately, but, but he did say that. We've heard some Republicans now talk about the end game has to be regime change. We see the rhetoric from the West, including our own country, responding, calling this genocide, which, of course, it most certainly is. Um, it, how might that happen? How could that happen? It would it would have to come from the inside, would it not? It would have to come from the inside. Uh, this is not something that um, we can do, but it's something that needs to happen. I would completely agree with President Biden and, and every yep. other uh, Western leader uh, who has said that. This is only going to end. The violence, the cycle of conflict, and certainly the violence in Ukraine, the only way this is going to end is with the end of Vladimir Putin and his kind, his kleptocrats. Um, because we know that Vladimir Putin has every intention of remaining in power as long as possible. And just in, last summer, in fact, uh, he changed uh, the constitution of his country. That, and that would allow him to remain in power until at least 2035. And you can bet that if he gets to 2035, he's going to stay in power for another 10 years, if, if yep. at all possible. So if that's the case, and unless something changes, we're in this for the long haul. This is the new normal, this cycle of conflict from Russia. He will rebuild up his, his armies, and then he will attack somewhere else. He is good at causing problems everywhere and creating enemies. That's what he needs to remain in power, to tell his own people that only, like as we were saying earlier, only, that only he can protect them. And so uh, regime change is required. How does that happen? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think that the sanctions, we need to keep on, uh, we need to sustain them and we need to keep growing them and we need to enforce them. We need to do everything we can to keep those going. Um, I think that they're a long-term prescription as, as Bill Browder and I wrote in, uh, in, in Canada's media last, last week that, you know, sanctions are like medicine. You need to keep taking them in order to arrive right. at the cure. And, and that's what we need to keep doing now. We need to keep the same level of sanctions we have now or increase them. That will, that will take those cracks that are appearing in the, uh, the oligarchs and the security apparatus that keeps Vladimir and Putin power. It takes those cracks and it will continue expanding them. Um, the ultimate goal would be to have the Russian people rise yeah. up and demand a change in leadership. So sanctions have to bite them so that, I mean, that's always the problem with sanctions. You're punishing the population in general and, and he's protected. I mean, he's not, he's not running short of bread. Well, hold on. You know, I, I'm not sure that those sanctions are necessarily going to affect the broader Russian uh, populace, the ones that live outside of St. Petersburg and Moscow. Vladimir Putin has done this himself. Um, he has done his people no favors over the past yeah. 20 years. Uh, in fact, the Russian Auditor General in his 2019 report um, warned that one in three hospitals in Russia do not have running water. 40% um, of those hospitals don't have central heating. Um, this is you know, indicative of the, uh, the failure of the Putin regime, the crumbling infrastructure um, that's, uh, that's you know, endemic all across Russia. Um, Vladimir Putin is causing more problems himself than sanctions ever could. And so the hope is, is that those sanctions, I mean, yeah, you know, the hope is that they would bite the elite in St. Petersburg and Moscow. 
Um, and But that would also be combined with uh, Vladimir Putin's own failures, domestic failures, uh, to create that sort of um, uh, grassroots uprising that, uh, that's, that, you know, needs to happen. Um, you know, but right now, I think he's done a very good job of repressing his people. He's silenced them. Uh, people like Alexei Navalny, who was a, you know, a natural leader, is in prison. Um, Boris Nemtsov before him, of course, who was a very popular Russian pro-democracy opposition leader. Uh, he was such a threat that Vladimir Putin had him executed, assassinated uh, in 2015. And then, of course, there's yeah. Vladimir Karamorza, who was a very effective opponent and critic of, of Vladimir Putin as well. He was arrested just two and a half weeks ago and charged with these absurd new laws that outlaw any mention of the of the word war in the context of, of, yeah. of the Russian yeah. invasion. And but this is the problem years. when you when you're counting on a domestic uprising is they know the price is their head. That's right, and uh, and Vladimir Putin has been vicious in yeah. his repression of at least in, in over the past two months of any critics of the war. In fact, there are fifteen thousand Russians in prison right now who have been arrested for criticizing the war. And, and that has an effect. It has a psychological effect. Um, it will cause people to second guess whether they'll criticize or walk out on the street and protest. Um, and but we need to get over that. We need to get yeah. over that. They need to get over that before we see any sort of change. And he's running the, the, the disinformation war pretty effectively at home. Um, although, as I think we discussed the last time we talked, he, ha he hasn't shut down Ukraine to the degree that we thought he could. Maybe he can't. No, I mean, he's hermetically sealed off his own people from the outside world. Uh, you know, uh, the social, our social media platforms, our media um, yeah. are not available to the Russian people. So he completely controls that information environment. And of course, you know, in the context of Ukraine, in the Western world, he's trying to do the same. Um, but it's, he's, he's not being very effective. Um, you know, the fact that he's called, you know, everyone under the sun who criticizes his war a Nazi isn't helping him. Um, I think that people uh, in the Western world recognize that he's irrational and that he's engaging in these sort of tactics. And the only place that his information war, uh, warfare is having an effect, and this should be a concern for Western governments, is in places like Africa and in Asia, um, who are supporting this. He's managed to position his war as a war between the East and the West. And he's uh, he's positioned it that uh, that Western support of Ukraine is essentially a colonial land grab, um, which is of course nonsense. But yeah. but he has been able to do that, and uh, this is one area where you know the West should also be paying attention is fighting that information warfare and, and for democracy in, in the developing world. I, I just want to end with one final word because we spend an awful lot of time talking about Mr. Putin and 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 his failures and his brutality. Ukraine, who can claim victory on many scores on a daily basis just because they're still standing, their country is decimated. He has taken out entire cities. He has left hundreds of thousands homeless and, you know, no, there's nothing to go home to ever um, rebuilding those cities. I, I don't see an even uh, a variation on a Marshall Plan that would be able to rebuild it. Are you more optimistic than me? Well, look, there, there, as of this week, if I'm not mistaken, there are 8 million displaced people inside Ukraine right now. 8 million people. Yeah. That is an, uh, an unfathomably large number yeah. of people who have been forced out of their homes. Um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that you bring up this question of, of rebuilding and such. I mean, th this is something that the Western world needs to look at. How do we, you know, we, we are moving towards that. Ukraine is successfully defending itself, and it is defending yeah. itself against this, uh, this barbaric invasion. Um, who's going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for the rebuilding of it? Or is it the Canadian taxpayers? Is it going to be the U.S. taxpayers? Surely we are going to help with that because it's in our interests, in our yeah. own security interests, to see Ukraine rebuilt and a stable Europe. Um, but I would say one of the other things that we should be doing is looking at this bill, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that's yeah. moving through the Senate right now, the Frozen Assets Repurposing Act. Yeah. Um, you know, Sell Putin's yacht and use the money. <laughs> well, Senator, I would tell you that there uh, are several oligarchs in this country who are on Canada's sanctions list. And yeah. the, the total value of their assets in this country exceeds, I would argue, probably $5 billion. Um, those assets could be sold off. And that would make a serious dent in the rebuilding of, of Ukraine. Five, I mean, $5 billion in the context of this war perhaps isn't all that much, but it is a significant contribution. So this is something that I think that um, you know, Canadians should be getting behind. Every senator should should get behind, including the, um, the Foreign Inter Interference um, uh, Registry Act that was introduced by uh, Senator Huzakos uh, several uh, several months ago. Uh, but this repurposing act is 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 a serious one, and I'm glad that the Canadian government and and Minister Jolie have signaled their support for it. So this is something. Yeah. It's a tool that we should keep an eye on and make sure that we use to help uh, rebuild Ukraine. A, a, a great place to end. And thank you for that uh, advice and maybe even a little bit of ad, admonition to uh, to uh, get on with what we need to do here. I think I've got fire alarms going on in here. So oh. I will say thank you so much. Uh, you're always very insightful um, and up to date on this topic. And we'll be we'll be back at you again, I'm sure, to uh, to see what progress we're making. Thanks for being with us, Mr. Marcus Koga. We'll talk soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Great. That's it for this edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. 